It's podcasting time. My name is Jonathan Isaacson, and this is Just Another Jerk Dispatches from Japan, the podcast where I ramble on about things with some connection to Japan, usually. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you cast your pods. It's time for another midweek coronavirus update, and we'll also be joined later by another former colleague and friend. Okay, that didn't really come out right. She's not a former friend. She's still a friend, but she is a former co-worker of mine, Rachel Ewing, who now works in South Korea to get a little idea of how things are transpiring across the Sea of Japan, East Sea, whichever you want to call it. The countries differ on what the, that body of water should be called. But anyway, we'll join Rachel in a few minutes. But first, let's talk about the latest developments from Japan. And, well, the news isn't getting better, which really isn't surprising. Japan's confirmed cases, including those 700-plus from the cruise ship. Remember that cruise ship? That seems so long ago, but it really, really wasn't. But, anyway, including those 700-whatever, I think 712 or so, Japan now has more than 5,000 confirmed cases, with over 1,000 of those being in Tokyo. The numbers in Tokyo are doubling in under a week's time, so things could very quickly spiral out of control and hospitals may become overcrowded very soon. So yesterday, Prime Minister Abe declared a state of emergency for seven prefectures in Japan. Um... The to- Tokyo and a couple others around Tokyo, I think Kanagawa, Saitama, Chiba, uh, I think, I believe, um, Osaka and Hyogo, which are down in the Kansai region, and then Fukuoka off in uh, Kyushu. All of them are kind of largish population centers. Um, obviously, Osaka, Hyogo, that's a very large population center. Tokyo, huge population center. And Fukuoka is a big city in the southwest of Japan. So those seven prefectures. Um, As I mentioned in the previous update, these declarations don't have a lot of teeth. And not a lot will probably change with this declaration in terms of what is and isn't allowed. There's a debate as to how much difference this will make for normal citizens. Um, The pessimistic view says this will do absolutely nothing. There's no lockdown, no penalties for disregarding the urging of the government to exercise self-restraint. The more optimistic view is that being declared an official uh, emergency, people will take those urgent requests more seriously. Companies will be more open to letting employees work remotely. I tend to fall more towards the pessimistic side, but maybe not 100%, maybe 70-80% on the pessimistic side, that this really won't do much, but we'll see. As to why there aren't penalties and the like, well, Japan's history as a military dictatorship has some answers to that. So Japan, during the earlier times, the shogunate, when there was the military warlord, and during the later expansionist imperialistic period of the first half of the 20th century, During those periods, emergency declarations were used to strip people of a lot of rights. And uh, after the Second World War, the government was stripped of a lot of their power to abridge uh, the citizens' individual rights. And it was just recently that the laws were changed to make it easier to declare a state of emergency 
in the current situation. And so what this all does for Japan's surge in cases, I mean, we'll just have to wait and see. As for Sendai, where I live, uh, we have seen an increase in the number of cases. Um, The number, when I checked at lunchtime today on April 8th, there were 32 confirmed cases in Miyagi. Um, There have been a few more cases linked with the hub, that English-style pub I talked about in the last update. And several of the cases have been people moving to the prefecture from places like Tokyo. In Japan, April marks the start of a new year for everything. School starts in early April. Um, That's when most people start their first jobs. If a TV presenter or a newsreader or whatever is going to leave a TV program, it's going to be at the end of March and the new person will start in April. So it's just when everything happens. If someone is going to be transferred to a different office within the company, so you go from the Tokyo office to another office, that's going to be starting in April. So this is a period when a lot of people are moving around the country. Exactly what you don't want to be happening right now amidst this coronavirus pandemic. So several of the people in Miyagi who were confirmed to have the virus were recent transfers from the Tokyo area. And several of them went to their ward office. So ward office, um, think like the boroughs of New York or London or whatever. Uh, So they were going to their ward offices and they're all all in one ward office that these cases were confirmed. And so, um, yeah, they had, the city had to close the Taihaku ward office and disinfect it. So yeah, this movement, this could potentially spread out of hand in a lot of other areas of the country as people are moving from one place to another. For me personally, um, the start of the school year at my university was postponed until mid-May, which I was really, really happy about. Um, keep everyone as socially distanced as is feasible. It also gives teachers a bit more time to figure out how we're going to approach this coming semester, I mean, this year, really. It's a good guess that even come mid-May, online classes will still be the prudent choice. So I'm currently testing various systems to see what I can do and make it as simple as possible for students to take my classes in an environment that they didn't sign up for. They signed up for in-person education, in-person teacher in the same in the same room. They didn't sign up for online education. And I hope that the higher-ups at all schools are thinking about what needs to be done to minimize the burden on everyone, especially the students. I mean, this is not just here in Japan, but everywhere around the world. Moving classes online is great for the purpose of social distancing, but you have to remember that not all students are as set up to be able to do a full course from home, be it their family's house or the apartment where they live by themselves. Personally, I am more or less ready and able to conduct my classes from wherever is the safest, be it on my computer in my private office at work, be it at home, or be it in the classroom, though I doubt we'll be ready for that anytime really soon. So that's a brief overcap of what's going on here in Japan. So let's find out how things are going in South Korea. I hopped on a video chat with my friend Rachel, who is definitely not a jerk, 
but she teaches uh, at university in Incheon, just outside of Seoul. So here's my conversation with Rachel. All right, so welcome to Rachel. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Um, as good as can be expected, I guess, with all <laughs> the all the craziness that's going on. All the worst, so not as crazy up here as it is in other parts of Japan. Since I don't know if you saw the news that they did declare a state of emergency for seven prefectures. Oh, only seven. So it's not nationwide. Ah, not, I saw. A, yeah, it wasn't a national. It was just. Uh, it's Tokyo, Saitama, Chiba, Kanagawa, and then you yeah, went uh, Osaka, Hyogo, so kind of the Osaka Kobe area, okay. and then Fukuoka. Makes sense if you know in areas where it's less populous and stuff, it doesn't have to be a state of emergency. Well, but except the problem is there. Are, some people are now worried that what happened in Italy is going to happen because yeah. how how all the people, they were going to first only lock down northern Italy and everyone fled to southern Italy. And then they said, okay, well, nope. Now we have to lock down the entire country. Cause I, yeah. Because <laughs> apparently there was, I, I don't, I have to look into this to see if that actually the case, but uh, a flight from Tokyo to Ishigaki, which is one of the islands in Okinawa, apparently was full. Oh. Again, I know. I have to, I, I have to double check that one, but. Mm-hmm. I had some students that just posted, I think, because school got these former students. I think school was delayed, and so they were off to Okinawa. And so, I mean, they're taking advantage of this time off. <laughs> yeah. Just people are, that certainly is something that I don't know. From what the news I've seen is that Korea took this a lot more seriously from the start. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, so like how, how, do, how are things in Korea? Right now, actually, things are starting to feel a bit more normal. Um, you know, when it started, so I was actually out of the country when, in that first week when it really started to um, jump in numbers. I was in Sri Lanka, actually, at the time, a country that had one case that had been, like, they had left the country, I think. So they basically had no cases there. and. I was only out of Korea for about a week. And when I left, I think there were 48 cases when I left. And then maybe four days into my trip, it kind of jumped up to maybe 100. And then that fifth day, it jumped up to maybe 200. And then that next day, 400. You know, it started growing. And so by the time I was coming back to Korea, I think it was maybe five or 600 cases, which at that time, it's so crazy to now, like to look at where we are now back to the then, but at that time having 600 cases was very extreme. The family that I was staying with in Sri Lanka, they were up in arms at the fact that I was going back to Korea. They thought that I (laughs) should not go back. and that week when I got back there, you know, everyone's freaking out. And my mom was trying to get me to come back to the States. <laughs> Glad I didn't do that. Um, <laughs> but as a result, I think because it was one of those first countries that saw the huge rise in numbers, everyone did take it really seriously because it was this really scary thing where even if you saw like in your area, if only a couple cases you know, came about in a day or two, that seemed horrifying. It was like, oh my gosh, our area has three more cases. Like it just, um, I don't know, it was also new, which I think worked in our favor just because 
everyone was scared and people really stopped going out a lot. People weren't grocery shopping. Most businesses for the most part stayed open, but just people weren't going out as much. Well, I also saw, I mean, because I know that one of the things that the whole world saw very early on was Korea very early on stepped up their testing mm-hmm. to like huge levels, like the, with, the, with the drive-in testing that kind of became the model for a lot of places. Like this is what you should be doing with your testing. I think that, to, to be honest, I think one of the main things that Korea did right, I think they did a number of things right, but the number one thing and the thing that I think would help most every country is I mean, catching it early on and start doing mass testing early on. I mean, they were doing thousands of tests a day to the point where like once they could do like full capacity, they were doing 20 to 30,000 tests a day. And it wasn't just, you know, I know in some other countries, I'm pretty sure Japan included, you have to check off a number of boxes before you're even given the test. So You have to have a fever for four days. You have to have direct connection to somebody who's tested positive or, you know, whatever. Whereas in Korea, for the most part, the moment you start having symptoms, you can call this phone number and they might tell you to maybe wait a couple days just to see if it goes away. But if they don't go away, then if they tell you to get tested, you go and get tested. And if like a doctor or somebody recommends that you get tested, then it's free. And so they were just doing so many, or you could do the drive up tests, which if, I mean, doctors can tell you to do that, or if you're just simply curious, um, you could do it on your own. And I think you had to pay if you did that, but it still, you know, wasn't astronomical, I guess, if we're talking in US terms. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so they were able to do this huge testing. And so um, I think that made a big difference. Also, they were really big on self-isolation. And so not only like of course if you tested positive you would you know go into quarantine but they were really big on um, putting people that are in close contact with somebody who tested positive in self-isolation so you know if you somebody in your office that you work very closely with was positive then they would basically request that you would self-isolate for a couple weeks or family members or you know whatever and so it really was limiting the the spread Basically, like back at our old school at TIU, if you had been in the same cubicle, we would have all had to self-isolate. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> um, you know, and I think also it's something that, I mean, this would probably never fly in America. I'm not sure about Japan, but uh, they did a lot of tracking. So, for example, mm. even this day, like if anyone in my area tests positive, the like local community, either website, or there's like Facebook groups or things, um, they will post pretty much where that person has been in like the days where they would have been most, um, most, uh, why can't I think of the word, uh, contagious. <laughs> mm. And so especially in the early days, like there was this map that everyone was constantly looking at. And especially when there were only a couple hundred cases, you could kind of track where these people had been, which of course, you know, like in the U.S., that wouldn't work because that infringes on some rights of privacy, et cetera. But um, it allowed you to kind of think like, oh, man, I was at that Costco on that same day. Um, mm. Maybe I should be a little bit careful. Um, and they also did like big time sanitization or like, well, so for example, uh, case number 19, the 19th person to get it in Korea had been to the mall that was nearby my house. And 
<laughs> so when we found that out, maybe a day or two after finding out, I walked by the mall and we're talking a huge mall. This is a very big mall. The entire thing was closed down. They had like one or two people at every single entrance, like, you know, in big old suits. They had this like kind of sanitization machine that was going through all the parking lots and spraying them down. Like, I mean, they just, they cleaned that place from top to bottom. And, you know, those are the early, the early stages of it. And so, I mean, possibly that was extreme, maybe not, I'm not really sure, but you know, since all of those things were happening very early on, I think kind of a combination between all of them, it really um, flattened out the curve, the curve, or the curve, like early on, I think, which is helpful, really yeah. helpful. When my mom was trying to get me to come back to the States, I kept saying like, mom, I'm pretty sure that it's going to spread there. And, you know, something, you know, this individualistic, like, mentality of America, which can be so great in so many ways to be honest that kind of scared me in a time of mm -hmm. crisis because you know where i live i've never once seen a shelf empty in a grocery store any shelf i've seen surpluses of toilet paper you can get hand sanitizer everywhere because you know people aren't in the same mentality of like oh my gosh, I need to get all this for me and my family. There's a little bit more, and not everyone, of course, these are generalizations, but um, I think in a lot of Asian cultures, to a certain degree, there is a little bit more of like a community mentality as opposed to like just only me, myself. And in the U.S., that did scare me a little bit because I just kind of felt like, I think some people will definitely come together and we've seen that. There's been a lot mm -hmm. of like really beautiful like outreach and connections um, but we've also seen not just in the U.S. in lots of different countries more usually more western countries where mm -hmm. kind of like you take care of yourself and your own and like good luck everyone else. There are certainly positives and negatives I think to both national characters but in times like this that cohesiveness like again, to be overly stereotypical of East Asian cultures, but that kind of that cohesive unit, mm -hmm. I, like the importance of that kind of does, it, it's, it's useful in a time like this. Yeah. And like you said, kind of the, the freedom and individualistic mentality, like you, I mean, I think, you know, people have that a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's, I just, it's not at the core of their very being the way it is as mm -hmm. a lot of Americans, I think. Because yeah, yeah, absolutely, that is a big part of culture here in Japan, too, is you know, as much as it, Japan gets maligned for not being a terribly, you know, expressive individualistic society, anyone who's been here enough knows that it, there's plenty of individualism in Japan. It's just not the core tenet of their being. Yeah, and it maybe looks a little bit different than like what you would see in other yeah. places, but yeah, yeah. No, I agree. So yeah, how how is your school dealing with all of this? Yeah, it's it's going okay, you know. We... So initially our our school year was supposed to start February 24th. And so that was like right when numbers were jumping up. And so they had pushed that back a week to March 2nd, I think. Um, and that's when we switched to online classes. And so we had about, well, we had less than a week. I think we were told on like a Tuesday or Wednesday that the following week we would start we would continue to start the semester but 
we would switch to online. Um, and <laughs> that was a little bit of a nightmare. Um, and, you know, we use, we're now using Blackboard, but they didn't have our Blackboard set up until like into week two. And so we had this first week where you had to like get materials to students, but they didn't want us to set up like another classroom environment because that would confuse students. So for mm. example, if you did Google Classroom or something like a Schoology, they didn't want you to do that because then it would confuse students once they switched to Blackboard. <laughs> and so like we had this like week and a half, like no man's land where kind of a nightmare. Um, we started doing like I actually I kind of pulled from some knowledge for TIU and I suggested that we use Google Drive. And so essentially we had one Google Drive that we've shared with all the students that has our materials. And then we had, I think in the very first day of class, had students set up folders for their different classes and then share with their teachers. And so essentially everything they put in their folders, mm -hmm. you know, we would have their work. And the first week we didn't have live classes the first week. It was a little bit more like make your materials and then they do them, which um, <laughs> from a selfish teaching perspective, it was easier to do it that way because actually like when you do it that way, you're creating all your materials and then during class time, you're creating other materials for like future class times. Um, in week two, we switched to live classes, which I'm glad we're doing because it's so much better for the students, but we have more teaching hours, so I'm teaching like 18 or 19 hours a week. And so when you're doing live classes, just all the materials you are preparing for that, like you kind of have to prepare things differently than you would simply in a class. And so you're doing a lot more prep. Um, also, when it comes to um, like classwork, you know, when you're in the classroom, there's lots of activities that you have students do that you're not grading them when they're in the class. You say, okay, here's an activity you're going to do, or here's something in the book or, you know, whatever. Um, and, you know, you might, you might check off that they're doing it or make a quick note, but you're not, you know, really giving individual feedback or individual grades in those activities. But we're kind of finding that within the online system, you have this digital trail where every time students submit different work, it, I don't know how to explain it. It just has this, uh, a little bit more of a feeling like you should be grading it or like, you should be acknowledging that they did it as opposed to just in class when you check it off. And so feedback, um, also just the more like we do different types of assignments that just tend, because you're not in class, like you have to give more mm -hmm. feedback. And I don't know, it's just been, um, <laughs> it's definitely been a lot more work, but I'm finally getting into a groove with it. So we are in week six now. And like, I, I am actually liking it, of course, being in person would be better for a number of reasons but I'm a big fan of not I mean uh, like wearing yoga pants and comfy pants and so it's nice to be able to wear professional clothes up top and then wear my pajamas on the bottom so that's really nice um and just yeah it's for me I'm a little bit of a luddite and so being forced into a techie world where you know I really have to fully embrace it like I think in regards to professional development, I think it's helped me. One thing I wonder though, like what was, what was the students like situation as far as getting online? Was there, cause I, I, I know I have 
always have a few students who don't have Wi-Fi at their house or where, you know, or their apartment or wherever. Was there any support offered for students in that situation? Well, see, I haven't had that problem. I think Korea is lucky in a number of ways. So number one, our school, most of my students have computers. So yeah, if I'm comparing to like TIU, it's an entirely different situation, I think, than with our JTRAC students. Um, internet, so a lot, like most places have internet, so most buildings just automatically come with internet. Also, um, data is a lot cheaper here. So I remember when I was in Japan, I think my cell phone contract, I think I had seven or eight gigs a month of data. And um, I fairly often went over that because my house Wi-Fi was really shoddy and so sometimes I'd have to use my phone a lot. And then when I came to Korea and I was setting up my cell phone plan, they had, <laughs> this is so funny to me. So the first option was five gigs a month. And then the next option, no in between, the next option was 100 gigabytes, <laughs> which I just, I, I honestly do not know how anyone could actually use 100 gigabytes of data a month. Um, but I bring that up to illustrate that even students that if they don't have Wi-Fi, probably a lot of them have unlimited data or the equivalent of that. And so they're able to like freely and easily access. Um, and I've also had students go to cafes um, because things aren't like fully closed down here. Just a lot of people are going to these places less. So it's, I mean, it's a podcast, so you can't see my fingers, but I'm putting them up when I say it's safer, <laughs> meaning, you know, it's slightly less crowded. And then also up until this last weekend, students could, like a lot of them were still living in the dorms. So we mm -hmm. hadn't closed the dorms yet. And so there's free Wi-Fi on campus. Is it, are dorms more common in Korea or is it just your school? I don't know that I haven't been here long enough to be able to answer that well. Mm -hmm. I know that since this university is a SUNY college, so State University of New York, and they, I believe, are trying to make it as similar to the campuses back home in a lot of ways. And so I think all freshmen, no, I know all freshmen have to live in the dorms, which is funny because like some, I have some students that live in the same city and so they, you know, are technically living in the dorm, but really like every night they just go home to their family because their mom cooks for them and does their laundry and you know, all of that. But um, I'm not sure if that is common in other, schools though yeah fair enough it's yeah. yeah i knew you were at say an american school in korea but so mm -hmm. you know, i imagine it's probably different than the korean like fully korean schools yeah because i mean i think korean culture is similar to japanese culture in that like you don't really move out from your family unless like you live in a different like you get a job in a different city or you get married like otherwise you pretty much live with your families until i mean you're old enough to get married and so I think that's pretty common especially if like you live in Seoul and you're going to a university in Seoul in general I think that you would probably live at home. Hmm. I mean that makes sense because it probably saves you money. Yeah well so what's going on in Japan so your guys' situation I know it's getting yeah like, so at this point Japan has if you include the numbers from the the, the uh, cruise ship which mm. This seems so long ago, but it's like <laughs> a little over like, like a month ago, a little over a month at this point. 
if you include the like, 700 on the cruise ship, so now Japan's over 5,000 cases confirmed, um, 100 some deaths. But again, Japan's testing is, as you say, much, there are boxes that have to be checked before you can get tested. How big of an impact do you think the Olympics had on the, um, I don't want to say transparency, because I think maybe Japan has been transparent. I just think that they've maybe not done right. a lot of that. Do you think, yeah, what is your opinion on that? that that's one that I, I, I can see, I see both sides of it. I have a hard time deciding how I feel about it, to be honest, because if it were the case that Japan were like Spain or Italy, that's not something you could hide. Yeah, right. Right. There are enough doctors and nurses in Japan that even if the government were trying to hide it, that would be impossible in this day of social, this day and age of social media being as widespread as it is in Japan. But at the same time, I mean, I can see that, yes, obviously, the backers of the Olympics really, really, really wanted to have the Olympics this year. But the other thing I think ultimately needs to be remembered is that Japan will obviously have input in the final say, but the IOC was going to have the final say whether or not the Olympics, Olympics got canceled, postponed, or whatever. So yeah, I, I honestly, I don't know. Yeah. It yeah. Did, it have, did it have something to do with it? Probably. I think the question is how much did it have to do with it? Yeah. Was it a was it a major factor? I have no idea. Yeah. I have no idea. And probably will I think that's the thing in many of these countries. Like there's a lot that realistically we may never know kind of what's happening. But I'm with you where, you know, there's I don't really think Japan is like hiding things and because like right. you said, you know, Japan's a pretty free country. I mean and People social media would, is exactly yes. and number i mean a lot of these places like you know in italy or spain or in new york like they're running out of places to put bodies like their morgues are overflowing and so i feel like if anything like that were happening in japan like you would know yeah that's what like, like i said i don't that's why like the like the extreme conspiracy theories i i don't i can't buy into them no, you would be way aware. I think, yeah, maybe, I, I think personally, probably the lead up that maybe week leading up to them making the call on the Olympics, they were maybe testing less than they could have been just because, of course, if they went through a big uptick in cases right when they were deciding, um, I think that that would maybe look bad. But, you know, now it's been a couple weeks and for sure there's been a rise, but that's true in pretty much every country in the world right now. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. And I'm going to say we'll see with, and there's, there are also questions now about this with the, the uh, official declaration of the state of emergency. Mm. How, how will this change people's behavior? Because Japan doesn't have in place any penalties if you, because there's no lockdown order. Because from mm -hmm. what I from what I understand, there is no there's nothing in the law that says that the government can enforce a lockdown order. Mm. Like they can they can ask people to stay home. But there's no <laughs> nice. yeah, but they can't actually penalize people for disobeying those requests. I again I have to look at the exact. It's I I see I've seen both. Some people saying, well, why didn't Abe you know put Tokyo on lockdown, but then other people are saying, but yeah, but 
the constitution doesn't allow for that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know the exact details because that's that's getting really into the weeds as far as like my yeah. Japanese language ability. Like I, I I speak good Japanese, but that's getting into some really specific stuff that I don't yeah. have. Like that's 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 above my pay grade when it comes to my <laughs> yeah. language ability. Be another decade or so, and you'll get there. Maybe. If I start studying Japanese law in Japanese. Technical language. Maybe not. Um, Yeah, okay, interesting. Yeah, I think same in Korea. I'm not sure because they've not done a shelter. They've kind of suggested like, hey, you you know, we're going to do two weeks of, you know, whatever, but nothing. I don't believe there's any laws or anything out there to... I mean, using negative language to punish people, you know, if they break it, more just suggestions, but I have no idea if they have that ability or not here. Yeah, I've seen, the majority of things I've seen say that, at least certainly local governments don't have that ability. Mm-hmm. And without, I mean, because I know the, and the ability to even declare a national emergency in this case required mm-hmm. some actual new laws to be passed. Oh, which I'm sure would be a really quick process if it's anything like our homeland in America. <laughs> or anything in Japan. I mean, this is Japan, no, not a bureaucracy. Takes no. <laughs> <It's> forever. <laughs> oh, man. Well, hopefully this all, I mean, I am very realistic that this, of course, will, I believe this will be around probably until 2021 and possibly beyond, but I'm hoping that it you know, we will get things under control. I do think, I feel um, a bit more positive looking at what is happening in Korea. You know, yesterday, I think we posted like 53. No, yesterday was 47. And then I think today was like 53. And so our numbers are down there. I think there will always be, I think sometimes where you'll see upticks as people get a little bit more comfortable. But um, I'm trying to remain positive and optimistic about maybe in the next month or two life definitely won't go back to how it was before in a month or two but you know i think it could go back to this maybe <laughs> purgatory area in between where <laughs> i don't know if that's good or bad but <laughs> yeah i guess yeah. we're just basically basically everyone's waiting for a uh, uh a, a shot for this yeah, vaccine yeah basically is what we yeah. need and and then we and then life can get back to normal, but not mm-hmm. until then. Oh yeah, I think it's going to be a while before we yeah, get so, back to. But yeah, basically, a vaccine will take what at least another year to be fully mm-hmm. approved by everyone in the world. But for me, like I'm, I'm a introvert, um, <laughs> so for me, this actually, yeah, you too, and so this actually hasn't been bad. Like I live at the edge of the city. Let me show you outside my window so I'm kind of right on the edge okay yeah so um I'm able to like go out for walks and runs and usually I don't see a single person when I'm out there and so I'm able to get fresh air and then I just do my normal (laughs) introverted homebody thing and so it's been fine yeah well you know because I I, we're kind of out on the far not absolute edge of Sendai we're up kind of getting towards the edge of the, the western edge of the city which is kind of being out into the mountains. So yeah, last weekend I got out on my bicycle and didn't see another soul for a good hour, so. Which is nice. So there's ways to do this. Now, I have already found that 
like I'm not great about talking to my family back home often. Like even though I'm very close with my family, I'm just garbage at like staying in <laughs> touch with the phone. But I feel like I've, you know, been doing a lot more FaceTiming and Zoom chatting. Like I did a Zoom chat with all my cousins last weekend. And so like in some ways I do think it, at least speaking personally, I don't know about for other people, but it's brought me closer to some family and friends just because, you know, we're making more of a concerted effort to stay in touch. So more silver linings maybe to this dark, bad situation. Well, thank you very much for sharing your experiences in, in South Korea. For sure. Thank you for having me. This was actually really nice to be able to kind of compare what's happening down here. And that's all for now. A big, big thank you to Rachel for joining me to talk about South Korea. Who knows, maybe we could have another update sometime in the future, but we'll see how things change coming in the next few weeks or months. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, share, sneak onto a friend's computer or phone to download and subscribe, whatever it is that you can do to help the podcast out. You can find the Twitter for this podcast at JustAnotherCast, and you can email questions, comments, suggestions, or whatever to JustAnotherJerkPodcast at gmail.com. So on that note, I'm out. Peace.